Hello, everyone, and welcome to the December 4th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Skarn, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal ruled that the exclusive remedy provisions of the workers' compensation law bars an employee's workplace safety fraud claim. Here's what happened in the unpublished case of Mendiola versus Crestwood Behavioral Health. Christine Mandiola worked with mentally ill residents in a locked facility at Crestwood Behavioral Health Incorporated. When hired, she understood she would be working with clients who were chronically mentally ill but stable. She alleged that Crestwood concealed that a large portion of the residents had pending felony charges or significant criminal histories. In 2011, Mendiola was working the night shift and monitoring three clients on the patio during a smoke break. One of the clients required line-of-sight observation, and Mendiola was the only staff member on the patio. Another client, resident G, became agitated, pacing and yelling in Spanish. When she tried to calm him, he turned his agitation toward her and assaulted her, bashing her head against the cinder blocks and throwing her to the ground. This resident G had been admitted to Crestwood under a Murphy conservatorship with pending assault and battery charges. He had been found incompetent to stand trial, and Crestwood also knew that resident G had a history of attacking women. Crestwood allegedly kept this information from its staff. She brought suit against Crestwood for assault, battery, fraudulent inducement, and misrepresentation, and unlawful business practices and other claims. Crestwood moved for summary adjudication as to all claims asserting that the workers' compensation was the exclusive remedy as to the assault and battery, and that there was no triable issue of material fact as to the remaining claims. The trial court found workers' compensation was the exclusive remedy for the claims of assault and battery, and later the fraud claims were dismissed for lack of subject matter jurisdiction, and Mendiola appealed. The Court of Appeal affirmed the dismissal in the unpublished case. Whether the exclusive remedy of the workers' compensation system in California applies to intentional torts, including fraud, is a complicated question. Mendiola's fraud claims are nearly identical to those in the 1987 case of Spratly v. Mitchell Donut House, Winchell Donut House, and are similar to the first claim that was barred in the 1980 case of Johns Mansfield Products Corporation v. Superior Court. These claims, whether misrepresentation or concealment, all relate to workplace safety an issue contemplated by the workers' compensation statutory scheme and a risk reasonably encompassed within the compensation bargain. The case of Saul Zuniga v. Interactive Trucking Incorporated and the State Compensation Insurance Fund involves yet another challenge to the constitutionality of certain provisions of the IMR process. After successfully appealing an IMR determination and obtaining an order remanding the matter back to IMR for review by a different physician reviewer, Zuniga filed a discovery motion seeking the disclosure of the IMR reviewer's identities. 
While the discovery motion was pending, the second IMR decision was issued authorizing additional, but not all, of the prescribed medications. Thereafter, over the defendant's objection, a trial was set on the issue of the disclosure of the IMR physician's identities. The workers' comp judge issued a decision finding that he could not release the names of the IMR physicians pursuant to the Labor Code Section 4610.C.6F. Zuniga filed a petition for reconsideration was denied. He then filed a petition for writ of review in 2014 with the Court of Appeal, arguing that the anonymity of the IMR reviewers violates due process and that the IMR statutes violate the guaranteed right to appellate review. In 2016, the petition for writ of review was granted by the Court of Appeal, and the Court of Appeal has now set the case for oral argument on December 19, 2017. The court requested that the parties should be prepared to address the extent to which the 2015 Stevens v. Workers' Compensation Appeals Board and 2017 Ramirez v. Workers' Compensation Appeals Board cases affect the issues in this case. Zuniga claims that his confidentiality provisions limits his ability to investigate the reviewer for bias or other ethical misconduct in support of an IMR appeal. The outcome of this case is not expected to markedly change the IMR system as a whole. Nonetheless, it will no doubt be some time next year before there is a result. And now our crime report. An former employee of a Southern California ambulance company and a former employee of a Los Angeles dialysis treatment center both pleaded guilty to fraud charges. The scheme resulted in more than $6.6 million in fraudulent claims to Medicare. Three other individuals charged in the case previously pleaded guilty. 53-year-old Aaron Aaron. Kroshakarian of Los Angeles pleaded guilty to one count of conspiracy to commit health care fraud. 47-year-old Maria Espinoza, also of Los Angeles, pleaded guilty to one count of conspiracy to pay and receive kickbacks for health care referrals. Kroshakarian is scheduled to be sentenced in March of next year, and Espinoza is scheduled to be sentenced in April. Kreshikarian was employed as the Quality Improvement Coordinator for Maroon Ambulance, an ambulance transportation company operating in the greater Los Angeles area. Kreshikarian admitted he conspired with other Maroon employees to submit claims to Medicare for ambulance transportation services for individuals who did not need such services. Espinoza was an administrative assistant at DeVita Doctors Dialysis of East Los Angeles. Espinoza admitted that she conspired with an employee of Marion to receive cash kickbacks in return for referrals of dialysis patients to Maroon. Earlier this month, 55-year-old Toros Onik Yarosoyan, the former owner of Maroon Ambulance, and 57-year-old Oksana Lutsiko, the former general manager of Marion, each pleaded guilty for their roles in the fraud scheme. The former dispatch supervisor at Marin, 36-year-old Kristen Hernandez, pleaded guilty to one count of conspiracy to commit health care fraud in 2015. 
As part of their plea agreements, all five defendants, defendants agreed to pay restitution to Medicare. The California Attorney General Javier Becerra claims that an Anaheim janitorial company servicing more than 80 major retail stores across Southern California paid its 150 workers far below the minimum wage for four years. Becerra announced a lawsuit against the contractor, One Source Facility Solution, and its chief executive, Dulip Josi, calling it an unscrupulous company. One Source's janitors clean stores for Ross Dress for Less, DD's Discount, Joann's Fabrics, Burlington Coat Factory, and Toys R Us. The retailers are not charged in the complaint because they contract out their janitorial work. According to the lawsuit, one source also allegedly underreported payroll taxes and provided false payroll information to its workers' compensation insurance carrier. The suit seeks at least $1 million in back wages for workers and unspecified civil penalties. The state labor commissioner has filed numerous complaints against shady contractors in recent years, but it has had trouble collecting back pay and fines as companies frequently go out of business and reincorporate under different names. A 2015 law, the Fair Days Pay Act, tightened enforcement and allowed the labor commissioner to place a lien on the property of employers who refused to pay a judgment. It also allows them to collect when a business closes and opens a similar company. Four San Diego area nursing homes owned by Los Angeles-based Brewis Management Company have agreed to pay as much as $6.9 million to resolve allegations that their employees paid kickbacks for patient referrals. The employees allegedly paid kickbacks to discharge planners at Scripps Mercy Hospital San Diego to induce patient referrals to the nursing homes in violation of the federal anti-kickback statute. Bills submitted for patients referred as a result of illegal kickbacks would constitute fraud against the United States and the state of California. The four nursing homes involved in the settlement are Point Loma Convalescent Hospital, Brighton Place San Diego, Brighton Place Spring Valley, and Amaya Springs Healthcare Center in Spring Valley. These same four nursing homes entered into deferred prosecution agreements with the United States Attorney's Office in 2016 and admitted that nursing home employees conspired to pay kickbacks. The nursing homes also admitted that employees used corporate credit cards to pay for gift cards, massages, tickets to sporting events, and a cruise on the Inspiration Hornblower that were given to planners at Scripps Mercy Hospital as kickbacks. The settlement calls for guaranteed payments of almost $1.8 million to the United States to be paid in three annual installments and over $240,000 lump sum payment to the state of California. The hospitals also agreed to pay up to $4.9 million to the United States if certain operational contingencies are met, making the total settlement worth as much as nearly $7 million. This settlement resolves a lawsuit brought by a former employee of one of the nursing homes under the Key Tom 
or whistleblower provisions of the federal law and the State False Claims Act. The whistleblower, Vicki Bell Monaco, will receive 20% of each settlement payment. And in medical news, the FDA is aiming to approve drugs based on very early data if the drug shows a possible benefit in terms of survival. FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb said the agency would approve such drugs quickly and figure out later whether the benefit seen was real or coincidental. Gottlieb cited the FDA's accelerated approval pathway as a potential blueprint for this program. Accelerated approval allows the agency to approve drugs based on substitute measures of clinical benefit. For example, cancer drugs that cause tumors to shrink are considered likely to confer a meaningful clinical benefit, such as survival. The same principle could be applied to drugs which appear to increase survival in a small number of people. It could be determined later whether the benefits was statistically significant. He said the agency was also working on a proposal to more quickly approve cancer drugs for additional types of cancer. He said the agency plans to issue guidance clarifying the circumstances in which such an approach would be appropriate. A new medical study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, Internal Medicine, says that patients may become less satisfied with their care when doctors refuse their requests for things like prescriptions or lab tests. The researchers examined data on over 1,100 patients with a total of over 1,300 doctor visits. Overall, about two-thirds of these visits included at least one patient request for the doctor to provide a particular specialist referral, lab test, pain drug, or other prescription medication. The study found doctors fulfilled these requests 85% of the time. When doctors did not acquiesce, patient satisfaction scores were dramatically lower than when the requests were fulfilled. The lead study author from the University of California Davis School of Medicine said this was a stronger effect than they expected. Part of the problem may be how often doctors are saying yes to patient requests, which becomes the norm in the patient's mind. They ask for something, and a very strong majority of the time they get it. A request denial, therefore, is quite out of the ordinary for them and probably likely to invoke a negative reaction. The most common requests in the study were for lab tests, followed by specialist referrals, pain medication, or other prescription drugs, radiology tests, and then finally lab work and antibiotics. Satisfaction was lowest for denials of requests and following referrals for another clinician, followed by non-pain prescription drugs, and then lab tests. There was not a meaningful difference in patient satisfaction based on whether or not doctors fulfilled requests for antibiotics, radiology, or tests. These results suggest that doctors may need to do a better job in some cases of explaining their rationale for refusing a patient's request. The reason for patient's requests also matter. The key is that physicians and patients communicate clearly so that the care decisions are being shared and are in the best interests of the patients. Medicare and other insurers pay for urine tests with the expectation that clinics will use the results to detect and curb dangerous abuse. 
but some doctors have taken no action when patients are caught misusing pharmaceuticals or taking street drugs such as cocaine or heroin. Federal pain guidelines say doctors should discuss test results with patients and taper medications if necessary. But Medicare and private insurers acknowledge that they lack the resources to routinely verify that doctors who order a high volume of drug-related tests do so to improve patient care rather than fatten their bottom line. The head of the National Healthcare Anti-Fraud Association, a group formed by private insurers and government officials, claims this is a big issue. In nearly a dozen recent criminal cases, prosecutors have cited evidence that doctors supplied opiates to patients with repeated abnormal urine test results. Ignoring repeated abnormal urine tests is bad medicine that endangers the safety of patients and the community. And in regulatory news, workers' compensation Medicare set-aside plans are required to set up reserves to cover Medicare beneficiaries' future medical care for injured workers who are or will soon be Medicare eligible. And now a new California Workers' Compensation Institute study examined data from over 7,900 California Medicare set-aside plans completed submitted, and approved by CMS in 2015 and 16. Nearly 70% of federally mandated and approved Medicare settlements for injured workers require funding for decades of opioid use, often at dangerously high levels and in conjunction with other high-risk drugs. Such a requirement exceeds federal and state clinical guidelines and places patients at high levels of risk, This, of course, raises the question, why are employers paying in advance for the costs of opiate medications that are inappropriate by today's standards? And more importantly, how can employers contest a CMS demand for such opiate funding? The authors of the study, Alex Swerdlow and Dr. David Dietz, found that on average insurers allocated over $100,000 at the time of the injured worker settlements to cover the future medical expenses with nearly $49,000, that's 47% of that amount, set aside to pay for prescription drugs. Opioids were the number one type of drugs included in Medicare set-aside agreements found in 69.4% of the approved plans. And overall, opioids accounted for 27% of all settlement prescriptions, more than twice the proportion of any other drug category. In terms of costs, the study found that with an average allocation of about $33,000, opioids accounted for almost one-third of the total dollars reserved for prescription drugs. In addition to requiring funds for long-term opioid use, Many of the settlement plans also included reserves for simultaneous long-term use of other potentially risky medications. For example, 14.5% of the set-asides with opioids also had reserves for sedative hypnotics, and nearly 5% had allocations for sedative hypnotics, muscle relaxants, and opioids. A new study by global insurer Hiscox names Washington, D.C., Nevada, Delaware, 
New Mexico, and California, among the states with the highest risk of businesses being sued by employees. The study revealed that U.S.-based companies on average have just over a 10% chance of having an employment charge filed against them, but the study found many higher-risk states. Businesses based in Washington, D.C. faced the greatest risk of being sued by their employees, 81% higher than the national average. Other states include Delaware and Nevada, which were 55% higher, New Mexico, 50% higher, and California, 46% higher, with Mississippi being 43% higher, followed by Alabama at 39% higher, Illinois 35% higher, Connecticut and Georgia at 19% higher than the national average, respectively. Claims against an employer can occur when an employee or job applicant feels they have been discriminated against in the workplace for unlawful discriminatory reasons. Unlawful retaliation is the most common claim asserted in federal employment cases. State laws can also have a significant impact on the risks businesses face from employee lawsuits and are the drivers of increased employee charge activity. Some state laws, including laws here in California, are more stringent than the federal statutes. On average, it will take businesses 318 days to resolve a claim. Without employment practices liability insurance, each of these companies would face an average $160,000 payment for defense and settlement charges. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.